Hi, I'm Mickey Lowe. Hi, I'm Bishop Todd. And welcome, welcome to, to the, the C4SO, C4SO podcast. podcast. I'm Todd Hunter, and I switched place with Mickey today. Now I'm flying solo. Mickey was solo last week covering for me while I was on vacation. And today, Mickey's not feeling in tip-top shape, so I'm happily covering for her. On today's episode, I interview A.J. Sherrill. A.J. is the rector of St. Peter's in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. He's an author. He's been a rector at previous churches. He's had a long time in ministry, and he's also an expert on the Enneagram. But today I talked to A.J. about writing. Most of the people who listen to this podcast are Christian leaders of one sort or another, and that means all of us write. We don't all write books. But we write sermons, we write newsletter articles, we write letters, we write emails, we write all kinds of stuff. And so today I talked to AJ about the craft and the inspiration and the outputs of writing and how it is that we as writers and our audiences and God form a triangle to which we're present to become ever better writers. AJ Sherrill in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Like, what is that, AJ? Is it actually pleasant? Tell everybody where you live. There is no mount. I've I've searched for it. Okay. We're in the Low Country, so it doesn't. I've, sort I've of make been sense. there a few times, yeah. and the, yeah, it's it's near Charleston. It's just outside of Charleston. I, I live about ten minutes from city center, uh, and it's sort of beachy. But I will say, the mount that does exist, it's actually uh, human made on a golf course. <laughs> So it's, it's no joke, like a massive mound oh, wow. of sand covered in grass. And that really is the extent of Mount Pleasant. So don't come with expectations of the Rockies. So how's that really work? Like, uh, like are people proud of being from Mount Pleasant or do they just say, oh, I'm from Charleston? I think most people here aren't from here now. We had a ton oh, okay. of traditional people and I, I was yeah. one of them during COVID. Yeah. So a lot of Northeast people that are just looking for better weather, except for hurricane season. And uh, yes. just a lot of transplants. So um, people, there's not a lot of, of, you know, it's not a place you would go for history. Charleston yeah. proper would be a place you would go for history there. Did you guys do okay with the storm that came through a couple of weeks ago or last we week, was it? A couple lawn chairs fell over. Other than that, we were smithing. That was it, huh? Yeah. Oh, good. So speaking of being new to Mount Pleasant, not all of our listeners would know you as well as I do. So uh, give everybody just a quick background of who's AJ, what he have been up to the last decade or so? Yeah, last decade. Uh, let's see, I've, I planted a long time ago in uh, Southern California, which is where I w- got familiar with your work. Mm-hmm. Um, non-denom at the time, and then ended up in New York City with my friend John Tyson uh, doing a church sort of um, parish model there. We had 11 yeah. parishes in the city called Trinity Grace back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then ended up taking a role uh, when we had a daughter at a church called Mars Hill Bible Church, <laughs> not Seattle, Mars Hill Bible in Grand Rapids. A church started by a guy named Rob Bell years years back. So I mm-hmm. led that for a number of years. And then when COVID hit, lo and behold, um, me and my wife really felt a long-term call to be in the South where I was born and where she was raised as well and to raise our daughter here. So we yeah. finally took the plunge into full-bore Anglicanism and really were wanting to be under your leadership. And so that sent us here to a church called St. Peter's in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And so we've been here the last three years. 
Yeah, wow, time flies, man. I can't believe it's been three years already. So, AJ, we want to talk today about writing, and that'll seem a little out of the blue maybe for uh, regular podcast listeners, but the reason we want to talk about it is that, you know, my long career suggests that all clergy person write on one level or another. They write sermons, they write articles for their church newsletter, they have to write formal letters, they're all kinds of writing that uh, comes our way in um, ministry. And sometimes that means publishing. And we'll get into this more. But as you know, there's a difference between thinking versus writing versus getting published and, mm-hmm. and getting published versus sales. So we want to, we'll unpack that a, a bit as we go on. But really today, I want to talk to you about the creative process of writing to help the, help our clergy who have to do these various sorts of writing, um, feel more confident about it. I don't know about you, but, Confidence would have been my first and biggest issue. A few months ago, I hosted a writer's retreat for people in C4SO who feel like they may want to write in the sense of being published. And InterVarsity uh, did it with me. So Cindy Bunch and Al She came and my agent and longtime agent for lots of other uh, other people came as well. So it was a, it was a fantastic three days. And, and there, AJ, I told this story that I don't know if I've ever told you. But really, it was two of my mentors, Richard Foster and Dallas Willard, who, you know, 20 years ago started telling me, Todd, you need to write. And I'm like, why? Like, that's what smart people do. I, this is, I honestly thought, well, no, that's what the Tom Wrights of the world, the Dallas Willards, the, the Petersons, the Fosters, the Nowens, you know, et cetera. That's what smart people do. I'm a practitioner. I use the things that smart people do. And Dallas just kept bugging me and bugging me about it. And one time um, we were doing a conference together somewhere and we were driving back to the hotel or dinner or something. And so I'm driving and Dallas is sitting in the passenger seat and he starts patting my right leg and saying, now, Todd, I want to speak to you avuncularly. And I'm like, what the heck? Did he just swear at me? Like <laughs> I had, I'd never heard the word avuncular in my life. So I literally had to go look it up. And it means to speak tenderly as a really loving uncle. And he just said, you really need to start writing. So I tell that story. I mean, it's fun to drop those names because I love all those guys. But I don't tell the story so much to drop names as to say, like, I really needed confidence that there was some reason that Todd Hunter, who's this practitioner, should write. So tell our listeners about your journey into thinking, like, why would anybody think that anything A.J. Sherrill thought should be published for the sake of others? I just think I that's I'm something still everybody wondering about that question. With. Yeah, yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. Me too. Fair but enough. you know, affirmation on the journey is helpful. Mm. Yeah. I mean, not everyone gets equal because some might be like, you should never write. Why would anyone, you know, and you yeah. have those people in your life too that you got to kind of weed out. But there are people God sends your way uh, that you know care for your best and and, mm-hmm. and feel they see something in you, you know. And it's not like opportunistic or whatever. It's just like, hey, listen, the Lord speaks through you, and I think it would it would it should scale. It shouldn't just be a tweet or a blog or an article or even just a sermon. Yeah. This needs to be scaled maybe beyond um, something that would be so ephemeral. I for me it was the same. It was uh, both. A lot of my books have come out of sermon ideas. I'm not uh, suggesting you should take like sermon, sermon series or yeah, sermons. Or sermon series where you realize, yeah. oh, there's a nerve here mm-hmm. that is hitting 
in all the right spaces and people. And I'm paying attention to that. Not that like every sermon series I try to discern, should this become a book? But you just begin to notice in the eyeballs of people what's connecting and what's not. Yeah. And and if you're connected to that and they're connected to that, there may be a bigger story there that transcends just a local community. And so when I was doing my doctorate, a couple things were happening. Papers I would submit to my professors, they mm. would say things like, you should publish this. Uh, and that was really encouraging to me to get that from a professor who's so much smarter than I would ever be. But wait, um, to, did you believe them? I I was naive enough to take the next step, I should yeah. say. Um, See, I had a hard time believing yeah. like Dallas and Richard. Well, that's – so here's the other thing. I used to lead – when I was pastoring in Manhattan, I would lead these contemplative retreats out in this monastery a couple mm-hmm. times a year. And so I'd take 15 people away. We'd do silent solitude and blah, blah, blah. And I realized, like, I would use this on Renow, an article from like the 80s or 90s in your mm-hmm. leadership journal. And I realized I didn't have the material that I wanted from my own heart and ministry to lead them. So my first thing was a paper I wrote in a contemplative class mm. that then I used for this retreat that then I published and just kind of, um, it just kind of, I don't know, went viral in some ways, which was yeah. pretty cool. So that was sort of my journey into into publishing for the first time, which I, yeah. I want to encourage your listener here today. Like there I, self-publishing is such a great Avenue that is new to yeah. human history. And so I know a lot of people discount themselves cause they're like, you know, I don't know if a publisher, how would they even take me seriously? I've only got 40 people in my church. Right? Mm-hmm. Why would they want to publish me? Because I don't know if I could actually, you know, help them turn profit, et cetera, et cetera. Right. That is, that can be like, if your goal is to just make money, yeah, maybe you should consider that. But if your goal is to be faithful to what God's put in you, that it could be helpful to to human beings outside of who know you directly, then then there are steps you can take forward into and to yeah. watch what God does. Yeah, that's a very good point. And we'll talk more about this as it comes up. But there's all sorts of writing. Um, to, to your point, if somebody is thinking, well, I, I maybe want to dip my toe in the water, they could start a blog, they could write on Substack, there's totally. lots of things they could do to just get their their toes in the water, all the way up to, you know, there's a handful of people in C4SO maybe who really could and do make a living as writers, like Scott McKnight certainly could make a living mm-hmm. as a writer. I think he's going on 100 published books. I know it's at least 70 some. Mm. Uh, it's quite clear that Esau or Tish or people like that around us, you know, who could make a living writing. But for most of us, that's not what we're talking about on this podcast. We're talking about um, what are the appropriate venues? What are the appropriate topics? Wh- wh- who are the audiences? Like we're talking about the full s- the full scope of writing and not merely being published, as you said, by, you know, as we often would say, like a, a reputable um, Christian publisher or something. So let's begin here, AJ. Um, and, you know, there's so many angles you could take with this. So just take the one that comes that's near to your heart today or top of your mind. Why do you write books? Like, what's the vision? What's the inspiration? Because you're not doing it to make a living. You're not trying to be a professional author. You're a rector of a church. So why do you write? It, for me, it's ancillary. It, it is not mm-hmm. my primary calling. Yeah. Um, so writing is always an extension mm-hmm. of local ministry. Uh, I had a really wise pastor say to me over breakfast one time, he was, uh, I won't use his name because people have heard of him and um, I'll just keep that anonymous. But he mm-hmm. said that one day he was walking the offices of his church staff and he noticed about, you know, he had a very large staff 
and probably a tenth of them, which was a fair fair percentage, I would say that's probably ten to twenty people mm-hmm. were in their offices writing their books for publishers. Wow! <laughs> and he was a prolific writer himself, and he had to call a meeting and to say, "Hey, when we're here serving the body of Christ, we're here for them. We're not here to to write for publishers for other people somewhere in the world." Yeah. And so do that on your own time. Yeah. And that was a really beautiful moment of me to get clear of like, wait. It, do I, am I called to this on my own time, uh, in certain seasons? And I'm not saying yeah. you're wrong. Or I'm not saying any of that. It just got me really clear about what it is. I believed about my conviction about writing and when that was going to be. And so that was a really helpful distinction for me. And I think it's really helpful for, for clergy to ask themselves one central question. Everything derives from this question. Do I have something to say? Yeah, that's it. Like, do I have something to say? And then analyzing that, should it be a tweet? Should it be a sermon? Should it be a Mm -hmm. blog? Should it be a book? And for me, the book comes later. I don't write my sermon from my book. I'll write my book if I see the Lord really has his hand on something that I'm saying or noticing. that I think I'm getting clear from other people could be helpful for a wider audience. So you're saying that your vision, your inspiration for writing begins with, do I have something to say? So how do, you, how, do you work, yeah, how do you work through knowing whether you do or not? You know, I, I'm thinking of the, yeah, I can't be the only one listening to this who would admit to watching uh, like American Idol or The Voice or that sort of thing, you know, where they yeah. do these background stories where, where, well, my sister told me I sing really well. <laughs> and then they get on the show <laughs> and it's terrible. So like, how do we know when we're kidding ourselves? How do we know if we have something to say or not? It's this, it's when you're willing to be criticized for saying it. Mm. Because eventually, whatever it is you're going to say, not everybody's going to agree or like it. And that's just, yeah, and, the, and it's going to have to go through an editing process, which is, oh, friend, which is friendly hum- criticism, right? <laughs> the humility of that yeah. process is fantastic, but it, it's having a kind of, it, it's not wanting to say something. It's having to say something. Yeah, It's mm. that conviction that will carry you through the critiques mm. that will come. And so I notice a couple of things that there, there, when I feel like I have something to say, it's received by eyeballs that it feels like like something very meaningful for their life yeah. and that it also feels like there's a risk to saying this to a wider audience because not everyone's going to completely jive with, with that. So it's like balancing those two at the same time. So that's why I say like deep locality is a good discernment for me because I, mm. I can realize, do, should I put a lot of work into, because writing, writing in general, especially a book is a lot of work. Yeah. And if it's not helpful from like a local level as a pastor, I should probably be questioning whether I should put, be putting a lot of time in this from like a translocal level. Right. Well, and I'm very similar to you. You know, pastoring a church with the size of complexity of St. Peter's is more than a full-time job. Certainly being the bishop of C4SO is more than a full-time job. So I did it this morning. I get up at five in the morning and write. Like, mm. I don't write you know, during my work hours, I write very early in the morning, Saturdays, you know, uh, days off holidays, whatever, you know, I, I managed to scrimp it out. And as you say, you know, this, that when you're done with the manuscript, that's just the beginning. Like all the work to get a manuscript done yes. is like, you've just started. <laughs> well, you get to that point, uh, where you actually wonder, is the publisher going to make me rewrite it? 
Yeah. That happens to people. And I know. Thank it's the never Lord, happened to me, thank God. Oh, my, me either. But it happens and it's, <laughs> it's frightening to think about getting that back. Well, yeah, you first get your reports back from an editor and it's moved this around and this chapter's this and this chapter's that and blah, blah, blah. There's all these. And then you get down to copy editing and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It's a big, long process that, you know, as you say, it, it it's a mountain of work. So I want you now to, to give our listeners some examples. So you've written on the Enneagram. You've written on contemporary prayer. You've written on quiet. You've written to help people get beyond superficial Christianity like take one of those or one or two of them and describe what you've described so far, where you had a big idea, you thought you had something to say, you began to get an, an outline for a book, like pick one of those or two of them and give our audience an example for how you went from a thought to your book with Rich on Enneagram or your book on Beyond Superficial Christianity or something like that. Yeah. So that book on discipleship is called Expansive and it's just yes, you know, yeah. stretching beyond superficial Christianity. The way that started, yeah. that was my third book. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, wasn't published. I was doing everything self-pub. And um, that was basically Mars Hill Bible Church had six directions. At the, Now they've become kind of common of inward and outward and downward mm-hmm. and upward and backward. They've kind of become common. At the time, Like I couldn't find that stuff on the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Sean Equist and Rob Bell and a few others had sort of sort of co-opted those terms to talk about the formation of, of a local church. And so I got their permission to scale that into a, really a local, a local guide for any mm-hmm. new person to Mars Hill. I wanted them to have a book with about 10 to 12 pages illustrating and imagining what each of these directions would look like in their life. Mm-hmm. So I, it was, it was a self pub that was for my church Okay, and then from there, I just published it and and started selling it on Amazon, and it just kind of went. Mm-hmm. And so that's a great example of how I feel. For me, I'm not putting this on any of your listeners. I feel for me, starting with deep locality and conviction around what my call is, which is to pastor, kind mm-hmm. of begins to help me understand um, where there's resonance and things need to be scaled beyond my locality, and that's where yeah. like. A formal publisher or even self-pub can be an option for scaling your work in that way. So that's just one example. Enneagram is another one. I published a dissertation on it and it just, I decided I'm just going to self-pub that and see how it worked. And it just flew. Um, at the time, people were, were really into the Enneagrams. So things yeah. have sort of changed a little bit, but, and then it led to all sorts of stuff. And so, so that was one of those that then got um, picked up as a two book deal with Baker with, um, you know, my quiet book, which became being with God and the Enneagram mm-hmm. and the way of Jesus, which became the Enneagram for spiritual formation. And I just added new content. It's interesting that when you start small and you just are obedient, if you yeah. sense that, like to see what can happen without an agenda, like I didn't think, Oh, I just, I hope I get picked up here. It was just like, this just seems to be helpful. And I'm just going to put this out there for whoever wants to eavesdrop. And it yeah. just kind of went. And I, I can't really explain it other than, just simple obedience to simple stuff. And, and yeah. you get down a road and you're like, how did I get here? I don't really know how, but I'm glad that I did that first step because without that, I wouldn't be here. So have you had a book with you when you partnered with somebody? I haven't. I have not either. I wonder how that, I'm sure there's very different experiences people have. Yeah. And I, I think it probably, one. if you're somebody who writes as an artist, that might not be the greatest thing. But I know people who write for more 
out of a more pragmatic ethos mm. for whom finding a partner is really important. So I'm thinking of the beginners who are listening today who may be finding a partner to write with them um, might be a, a, a good thing to do. Yeah, I would imagine uh, a robust commitment to fierce communication, uh, making sure that things are really yeah. clear and clean. Yeah, um, It feels like that would be harder to do with someone that you're not close with in proximity or in deep relationship. But yeah. when those things are, I think, in tandem, it, it might be easier, but I, I don't know. So since virtually everybody who listens to this podcast is a, a pastor, rector, clergy person, Christian leader, I want to underscore something you said before and underscore it with um, a short story of my own. People might be surprised to hear this because I've published eight books, working on a ninth now. Um, and this is in the last six months I was whining to my agent about I don't know if I should keep writing, you know, Mike, I like, my, I'm not Tim Keller, you know, like my books aren't New York times, bestselling books. Like, I don't, why am I doing this? I don't know if I should keep doing this. And she said a lot to me, two things I want to say to our audience. First of all, she said, Todd, there's no there, there. She said, I've known people who wrote an outstanding book that was a huge bestseller and then never wrote anything again. And she just, you, she was just saying to me, you should never be writing you know, based on sales numbers and yeah. that sort of thing. She said to me what you've said. She said, Todd, your writing should only be an extension of your ministry and your calling. Mm. And if you're not writing like in harmony, in continuity with what God has called you to be and do as a bishop, then like, why are you doing it? Like this can't be, you know, who's publishing it or how many sales numbers, et cetera. Mm. So I want to underscore, you said it, and with similar words that the writing we're talking about here, especially if it's for publishing should, well, I, all of our writing, I would say, but especially for that, which would be published should be an extension of our ministry. Anything more you want to say about that? No, I I think that's really honest. And I think it's really fair to the people Mm -hmm. we're serving on a a daily and weekly basis. Um, Yeah. But I think to limit it to that too, like I, I would love for vestries and for governing boards to to desire at the same time to support their clergy to have a voice, you know? Mm-hmm. So for both of those things to be in concert, I think feels really important. Anybody who writes knows that audience is preeminent. And, um, and anybody who's ever written a book or a, a book proposal, you know that you have to be really clear about who your audience mm-hmm. is, et cetera. So- when I write AJ, like when I wrote my book, Deep Peace, um, the one just before what Jesus intended, I thought of who are the people in my life who I knew struggled with anxiety or who were really struggling during the pandemic, which is kind of the era out of which that book, Deep Peace, came. And I literally made a collage and put it up on the wall in front of me um, so that every morning early when I was writing, I could remember Oh, this is who I'm writing to. Like I'm actually writing to this, these four people, I forget, or six people. And then they represented, you know, this larger audience. So talk a bit about how it is that you imagine yourself um, being focused and staying in tune to an audience for these various books you've written. I usually come down to about three categories. One's primary, two or secondary categories of the kinds of people I'm writing to. I often find myself like, a primary category I write to and, and, and write sermons for are bored Christians. Mm. So I, I'm not great in the evangel- the evangelism space. I, I'm mm. constantly having to keep growing in that. Um, I'm really 
better at reimagining what people think they know mm. and helping to deepen that and bring some yeah. contextual and applicational insight. So I put names under my categories to, to uh, where like every time I see, it's not just like an idea of a board Christian. It's like Larry who sits on the third row who like yes. was christened and yeah, um, so is important. just like glazed over on a Sunday. Right. And so that's an icon <clears throat> for you yeah. of a wider audience. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm writing a sermon and Larry's not included, then I've, I've totally missed ministering mm -hmm. to his heart. And that's yeah. like a problem as a priest. Not that you can always catch everybody at a thousand, right. but to be like, hey, there are real people. And you need to imagine who those real people are when you're writing. Otherwise, you begin to write out of your own um, comfort. Yeah. And that may not always be helpful. Like all writing and all preaching is compassion. In other words, there's like an outward orientation that I do this for the sake of. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's not for the sake of, of hearing myself. It's that it might actually form the listener or the reader for that matter. Yeah. So I don't mm -hmm. think I've said this out loud before in public. So, um, you know, let's just riff on this for a little bit. Hearing you say what you just said and thinking about how I do something very similar, I think without an audience in mind whom we love and with whom we're trying to be empathetic and compassionate and discerning, about what their real needs are. I think without that, like any form of art, our, our, our writing can become self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. And again, I remember, you know, I don't know how long American Idol has been on, but I don't know, 20 seasons or something. And I can remember Simon Cowell in the early days when he was on American Idol saying to some contestants, well, that just felt very self-indulgent to me. I had no idea what he meant. Honestly, I didn't, because I'm not a musician. I'm not an artist. I didn't know, I didn't know what he meant, but I now do. Meaning we can get so enamored with our ideas. We can get so enamored with the words we choose and the grammatical constructions we choose that we get all enamored with our own ideas and our own, you know, prose that it becomes very inward and all about us without an audience. Yeah. Right. Like how do you experience that dynamic? I experience it most when I read Henri Nouwen mm. because he's, you know, he's so much smarter than his writing. Yeah. But there's a kind of, um, oh, I forget the phrase. It's like on the front side of, oh, what is it? Complexity is naivety on the back side of complexity. Complexity mm. is like simplicity or, yeah. or profundity or something like that. Yeah. There's a kind of writing he does that he's on the back side of complexity. That it's so simple that it's profound. Yeah. And you're like, oh my word, like the way he put, you know, that there is a, a sort of, um, a, a treasure trove of wisdom and prose under that, that he mm -hmm. has distilled it into a sentence that now is accessible for yeah. so many more people. And timeless. That, yes. That's yeah. compassion. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think that that comes with a lot of foul balls, um, mm. that, you know, it's just even today, like I read his stuff and I'm like, um, he just, you just have to write a lot. And for people that write yeah. sermons every Sunday, you're probably further along the line than you think and give yourself credit for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. You never get the feeling that now one's trying to impress us as a writer, that more he's sharing his heart. And like you say, probably one of those brilliant sentences distills maybe seven paragraphs mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. get distilled yeah. into this one beautiful pregnant sentence that, you know, I know my now in books are about as marked up as any books I have yeah. because there's so many pregnant sentences in them. 
Well, and they're coming out of experiences that he's having, you know, at Larsh, where he's yeah. he's having these experiences with real people. He's not he's not on the conference circuit looking f- to shop ideas. He's actually having a real conversation with real people, which is why yeah. I think pastors can sometimes be uniquely positioned to to write meaningful things because hopefully we are in the trenches with people and have something to say as a result of that. Yeah. So I want to say to our listeners who I can feel some of them might be a little confused right now. um, There is a self that is obviously front and center to writing like AJ Sherrill's a self and our friend Esau or Tish or Scott McKnight or now or, or those of us who aren't as talented, we're selves. And so the, the antidote to self-indulgent is not to setting yourself aside, because if you set yourself aside, you're setting aside your ideas, the empathy, the compassion, the insights, wisdom, discernment that God's given you. So this isn't about setting the self. The way I think I would want to put it, AJ, is that we set ourselves in a triangle of ourself as one point of the triangle, um, and then including our ideas, and then there's our audience that we've said we have icons in our mind, and then there's the Lord. There's the triune mm-hmm. God. And so I think the antidote to self-indulgence that hangs on to, to a self in the appropriate sense is to just embed that self in mm. some sort of triangle like that is the best I can think of off the top of my head, right? Because yeah. yeah. we don't want to say yourself should disappear. Like, what is that? <laughs> Yes, I agree. It's out of these these sort of um, uh, learnings and these uh, these neurological connections that we're making within the self mm-hmm. that yeah. that then becomes helpful to other people. Yeah, yeah. Virtually everything we read and appreciate, it's because it came from a, a formed self <laughs> who was not being self indulgent, but was rather being a self for the sake of others in their writing. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a bit about um, your writing process. We've talked about audience. We've talked about the the things that um, spark your writing, um, the things that germinate your writing. What about your writing process? Um, what mm-hmm. could you share that might be useful to those who are toying with writing? Yeah, the first thing I would do to encourage you is to say, don't worry about saying something new. Mm-hmm. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, a yeah. lot of people stop themselves short of like, well, you know, there's already a book kind of like that. Don't worry about saying something new. Worry about saying something fresh. You know, if yeah. you were to go to Barnes and Noble or whatever vanishing bookstores existed, mm-hmm. yeah. and you were to look on the shelves or you go to the library, as if all of these are proposing fundamentally new ideas. Yeah. Every generation needs new ways of thinking about old things. Yeah. I mean, that's why Eugene Peterson's the imagine if Eugene Peterson's like, I don't need to write the Bible. Like, the message doesn't yeah. need to be written because we, we already have the Bible, right? It's yeah. like it's the freshness of his interpretation that stays faithful to ancient yeah. truth is what's so beautiful about that. So right. I would encourage you by saying like, if you have something fresh in you that is being sort of like mm-hmm. incubated and wants to come out, like that's a really good thing um, because someone else has said something like it, but there's a fresh voice from what God's doing in you that needs to be said in a fresh new way. Um, obviously with getting, giving proper footnotes. Um for me, again, so much like right now I'm, I'm writing a book um, with Waterbrook on Christmas. It's called Sacred Christmas is the working mm-hmm. title. And it's essentially uh, what you thought. Um, I don't I don't know if subtitle yet. We're still working on that. But it's basically the, 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 the nativity story you thought you knew. 
Mm-hmm. So for me, it's helping unpack um, each of these characters at Christmas, Simeon, the Magi, in ways that you haven't heard some of the first century insight that helps re-landscape our understanding of the all of these stories. Mm-hmm. And so I teach in Israel and take groups there and pastors there and teach these these sort of like ancient ways of thinking about following Jesus. And it's like it, it opens up a whole panoply of understanding for people because they've never seen it in, in the actual context in the land. Yeah. And so for me, a lot of it is when I start teaching this stuff or writing about this stuff or, you know, doing Instagram stuff on this stuff, I begin to notice where there's resonance and just like spikes with people. And that helps yeah. me, that gives me clues of like, Hey, you need to, you need to think about maybe expanding this project. Maybe it's not mm-hmm. just a four sermon series. Maybe it's a longer sermon series, or maybe it's a four sermon series that now has hit such a, a nerve that you need to now take this into your writing world and f- develop it further and see yeah. where that goes, you know, and then maybe you need to write a book proposal to see where that goes, or maybe you mm-hmm. self publish it. So it's that kind of thing. It's a snowball for me. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had a moment where out of nowhere, I just said, well, I want to write a book. Okay, now I need to go figure out what I want to write on. Yeah. That's not how it works for me. Like, right. like I'm a content idea guy. Yeah. And when ideas seem to work, it's like, okay, what are the ways I might um, trap this content that might be helpful for, for the user? And that's right. where the idea of like, let's do a video here. Let's do a book there. So I think we get ourselves into a lot of trouble when we're like, well, I just want to write a book. And then you're yeah. searching for what you could write on. That's not a great place to be. Um, no, and even as a writer, yeah, if you've written a book, it's kind of like a tattoo. You're like, I got to get my next one. And it's like, no, 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 mm-hmm. rest, follow yeah. Jesus. It will come if it's supposed to in time. I think a lot of the freshness that you're talking about, AJ, has to do with context and contemporariness. So let's let's say you were in seminary and there was something about eschatology that really sank mm. deeply in you and you've never been able to get out of it and you read about it all the time and you think about some aspect of eschatology and then something happens in contemporary culture where that thing that you've been sitting on for 10 years. Yes. Now a fresh articulation of that would be so helpful. That's good. Right? Or some element of soteriology or some element of a Pauline letter or some element of, you know, anything that's, you know, been just sitting in I make up deep for you came out of that, right? Like that wasn't just like in a vacuum, you know, to apply deep peace to a cultural moment. It matters. Sure. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think, again, I just want our, I want our audience to be encouraged that wherever God has implanted some deep idea in you, well, both deep and probably broad, m- moments will come in life where, as you say, it's not that you're saying anything new. You're, you're simply repackaging what you learned from someone mm-hmm. else in your voice for today's issues. And that's really valuable. It's one of the things that I couldn't get my head wrapped around where again, when I challenged Dallas of Dallas, no, I, I, I'm not a writer. I'm not a thinker. I'm a doer. And he said, no, Todd, the world needs people like you who can take the kinds of things that I and other people teach and make them practical and wider forms. Mm -hmm. Even when he said that to me, I sort of got it, but I didn't really get it. But now that I look back, you know, my first book came out in 2008, I think. So now that I look back over all those years, I can now see what he was saying, that I had ideas in me that I didn't know were important. And what, and I think what, what helped me get over that is what you're saying was not nothing new, but something fresh for this moment. Yes. So again, picturing this audience of, you know, virtually all of them being Christian leaders of one 
form or another. What words of wisdom or encouragement do you have as we end for those who want to write more, want to write better? You know, where should they start? What should they do? Where should they start? Uh, they should start with the next right step. So if, if you've got a project you want and it's like way out there, some beautiful vision of what you would like to see, you know, I, I think you've, you've got to just be willing to take the next right step. So that may just be at 5 a.m. committing to gutting out a manuscript and to seeing where mm-hmm. that goes. And I'll just say this, like it may be that you've got out a manuscript that never goes anywhere. Well, what you've learned is that you can do that. You can mm-hmm. write a manuscript, you know, I, for a lot of people, it's like, oh, and you've learned to write. <laughs> you just do it. Yeah. You, yeah. Learn, you, you, it's You're trial learning to write as you do that. Yeah. And it may be that in 20 years and 15 years and whatever, something happens in the cosmos that just the stars align and, and you have actually learned some things over the course of life that lead to the next thing. So whatever that next step is, and it's probably small, do it because mm-hmm. you never know where that road's going to lead you. And you look back and you're like, how did I get here? And it all goes back to those simple little obediences. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's what happened to me in New York. I was wanting to write a commentary on the gospel of Matthew. I would get up at 5 AM every Thursday and write for three hours before I went to work mm-hmm. until it was done. It took a year. And that was the first time I actually sat with something and was like, okay, I think no one's going to read this, yeah. but I can do it. Right. And yeah. that was really helpful for me. Like when you said you might write a paragraph or a page or a chapter or a whole manuscript that doesn't go anywhere. I think people will be, uh, might be shocked to know this, that I don't know how many words were in deep peace, but let's say 60,000. That's a typical trade book. What Jesus intended was a little shorter. I think it was 50,000. Well, y- you will know this, but I think most people will be shocked to know that I probably cut out 30,000 words from deep peace and probably about as many from what Jesus intended. And right now the book I'm working on, on justice, I started out with, I was shocked. My agent about fell over. I had 732 footnotes from all the research I've done the last two or three years, reading people of color on justice. You can't have a book, a popular book with 700 footnotes. (laughs) Well, now as I start cutting it and refining it, you know, I think I'm down to maybe a couple hundred or something, but I just want people to know that writing stuff that doesn't get published is part of the deal. Yeah. And I'll give away a big trade secret here, either that or Eric and Andrew will cut it out. But that stuff that gets cut from my book, it doesn't get wasted. I give it to Andrea and we turn mm-hmm. it into social media posts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as much as we can. Yeah. So I just want to underscore that just don't think that every word you write, you know, is going to get published. It's just not. <laughs> I mean, writing stuff that doesn't see the light of day. Again, just ask any songwriter, you know, writing or poets, writing things that don't see the light of day is just part of the process. And like you say, it's part of the learning process. It's how we all learn to write. And it goes back to your triangle. So much of this is also about our own formation. Yeah. And it's really good stuff. What happens to you when you write? Now, we don't want to hear your neurotic moments when you think you stink and should never write another word. But if you you think about it more positively, what has happened in your own formation because you write? Oh my word, y'all. It's so, you bring stuff to the table when you write, but so much of it is encounter. So like, imagine you're going before a blank document. 
what happens, it doesn't always happen like this, but if flow happens in your writing session, you almost, you feel like at times the spirit of the living God is at work in your, your mental and emotional processes in a way that comes out into flesh. It comes out onto a page. Yeah. And I feel so, we all, some, for some people it's surfing for others. It's a mountain for others. It's, it's whatever it is where you hit that flow and you just feel alive in Christ. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't happen all the time or maybe even often, but when it does, it's like, I feel the goodness of God yeah. close at hand. And for me, that is, it's, it's wonderful and it's exhausting. Yeah. Then I go take a nap. Yeah, I agree. I, I told, you know, friends and, you know, various people who asked me about it when I was writing deep peace, even though I'm getting up at five in the morning and yes, there's some discipline to that and setting an alarm and all that, man, the truth of it is AJ, the vast majority of days, it almost felt like journaling. Mm. I felt so close to the presence of God writing that book more than any other book I've ever written. Mm-hmm. And then I had a similar thing with what Jesus intended. I think I felt more connected, my heart more enlarged towards and compassionate and empathy for the de church, the you know, the nuns, the duns, the skeptics, the burned out, the ticked off, you know, don't want anything to do with Christianity or God or church anymore. Man, every morning as I wrote that book for them, I found my heart being enlarged for people. So I guess what I would say is that if I think of how writing books have formed me, is that it enlarges my heart for God and in heart and enlarges my heart for people. I, now beautiful. I wouldn't have known that in 2008, but looking back, yeah, I think now I can see that. It's beautiful. Great, thank you, AJ. And when I come to town, we will find that mount in Mount <laughs> Pleasant. Well, it's an expensive golf course, so bring your okay. wallet. All right, thanks, AJ. Grace and peace to you, Bishop Todd. Thanks so much for tuning in to the C4SO podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to share this episode and subscribe and leave a review. It helps us to get the word out. Thanks.